Hello, everybody. I'm Astrid County, and welcome to... What are we talking about today? What is this today? I know we're here today with one of our patrons, Darren. Say hello, Darren. Hello. I'm very happy to be here with Sam Livingston Gray. Hello. Welcome, Darren. And I would also like to welcome another surprise special guest, uh, Cheryl Schaefer. Thanks, Sam. I'm happy to be here and introduce our friend here, Jessica Kerr. Thanks, Cheryl. And this is a really fascinating episode today. Let me tell you the story of how this episode happened. See, Coraline went to Africa, and then she was coming back from Africa, and then people wanted a show with some origin stories, so we thought we'd have a show with just us, but we moved it because Coraline was coming back from Africa, but apparently Coraline is still in Africa time zone because she's not here. So we popped onto the Slack and asked for some company, and Cheryl joined us, and Darren joined us, and Darren has a question, and we don't know what it is. Darren, what is the topic of today's show? I've been thinking a lot about what it means to be a senior engineer when you don't want to go into management. So I wondered what all of that meant to you. What does your career path look like now that you've sort of crossed over to senior developer when it's not as clear what the next steps are? Excellent question. So yeah, that's a really interesting question. It's one that I've been pondering for like five or six years. And I don't really have a good answer, but I really love programming. I really love you know, figuring out how to get better and better at expressing solutions and even just expressing problems. And I love being able to teach people, but I have zero interest in going into management because I know that if my job involved going to meetings and remembering stuff, like I would be absolutely horrible at it. So like I've been a senior developer for in title for like six years <laughs> and I don't know where to go from there. And that's probably going to be an issue at some point, but it's okay for now. So can I ask a question related to this? Because I don't, I don't have an answer, obviously. But I do have a question, which is, when I was working at HP, and I'm wondering if this is just because they do a lot of hardware, they seem to have a path for this. And it was different. It was like you became like almost a senior fellow kind of thing where you were a person who within the company, you were considered to be an expert. And whenever different groups were working on certain types of solutions that maybe you was in your wheelhouse, you know, they could consult with you. So it was like you were sort of like an in-house advisor and you were also the first point of contact for whenever they were going to make new products or something like that. Like, does that not exist for software? It does in a few places. You can be like Monsanto, they called it a technical fellow. So that would be like the extreme senior level, like Kent Beck at Facebook of someone that anyone can consult when they need like some serious wisdom or serious perspective on what the company is doing. As Sometimes it's just a matter of knowing so many different groups in the company that you can give a much broader perspective and connect people. I've seen places that have, uh, after senior engineer, they might have tech lead and they might have principal engineer, but those have definitely been much less common as I've just been wandering around looking at random job postings. Like the principal engineers and the tech leads, what are they doing? Well, tech lead is fairly descriptive. Like you're a senior engineer who is also like the nominal head of a team. As far as technical decisions. Right, yeah. So when I was at Living Social, they had at least the idea of this, where they would have you know somebody who was taking care of the management side. This, I think, was more at the director level, but they had somebody who was taking care of the management side of things so that they could have tech leads focus on tech leading. Mm -hmm. But one or two of the places where I've seen principal engineer, at least one of them, it was basically an excuse to give you a higher salary than they could if you were a senior engineer. Other places may vary. Sure. 
Uh, Stripe had a very well-defined technical track that went as far up as the managerial track because they really do want people to remain technical. And also, they defined it pretty well. Basically, as you move up in the technical track, you're expected to have more impact and influence at the company, like these technical fellows do at at the top level. Uh, But you can think of it as if you want to be more value to the company, then there's only so much productivity you can have. There's only so much code you can write, really. As you get senior and more impactful, you start having more influence on what other people are doing. You start making the people around you more productive. As a tech lead, hopefully what you're doing is making the people on your team as productive as they can be, even if the sacrifice is for you. I have a name for it. It's it's generativity. I, I got this word by reading the... Journal of Organizational Psychology, kind of randomly. (laughs) Uh, And they have, this word came up in like three articles in just one volume. And every time it had a different definition. But the definition that I like, and therefore the only one I care about, is generativity is the difference between your team's output with you on it and your team's output without you, as opposed to your personal output. So you can have a ton of productivity. You can be Brent in the Phoenix Project and you can have negative generativity because if you are dragging your team members down, if you're not helping them, if you're making them feel stupid, you're actually going to be destructive even while you look way better than they are. So this is one way to be a 10x developer is to hold the other your other team members down. But this is not, in my opinion, this is not a senior developer. A senior developer is about generativity, is about is the team two developers more productive because I'm on it, two junior developers more productive. And you're not doing the work of two junior developers. You're bringing up the junior developers on your team to you. And then at a higher level, you can even do that for the whole company. I see several ways that you could go about increasing the productivity of your team and your company as you move upward in the senior developer track. There's the usual ways of pairing and teaching, mentorship of helping other people understand what's important. Also sponsorship in making the managers aware of who should be promoted to from junior to mid-level or whatever, and who's not happy on the team and who would be a really good fit over there. Networking is another one. One thing that most developers, when we start out, don't do a lot of is finding out what's going on in other teams. And that's a huge generativity boost, both for your team and for the other teams, when you can find those synergies and find, well, more often find those pitfalls of what you're about to break for somebody else (laughs) or what they're about to break for you. But we can express it in the positive sense of finding things that you're both doing and could work together on. Management is another way that you can increase your, your influence, your leverage, your impact. But if we talk about that, it'll be another segment. I've got a brand new one. Okay. This is totally new. You know the architect career track, which is stereotypically, I'm just going to tell all of y'all what to do and let you deal with the fallout and making it actually work. (laughs) I'm going to make beautiful UML diagrams over here. (laughs) (laughs) Right, which the business loves because one of the jobs of an architect is to make the technical reality legible to the business people. And those diagrams add legibility. They make it so that people can understand or have the feeling of understanding without knowing the whole thing because nobody can know the whole thing anymore. That's one job of an architect. And actually, actually, 
Gregor Hopi has a, a good book about this, which I will link in the show notes. It's he's fun to read and really fun to listen to, but I don't think he usually lets his talks be videotaped, which is sad. Or at least he didn't the last one I was at. I have a theory that the real architects, the real ones who are influencing how the software is actually written and increasing the productivity of the developers have the title infrastructure engineer. Because an infrastructure engineer is building the platforms that developers are using. And as, as we accept the face, the reality of DevOps is a necessity of we have to operate the software that we write. We don't just each team picks its own way to operate it. God, that would be a mess because it's a lot of work to pick a way to operate it. And it's not a, a lot of work to automate that operation. And it's bad for the business to have portability problems. Like if I change from one team to another and I have to spend two weeks learning how to ops on that team, right, then I've just wasted two weeks of money. Productivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a dangerous consideration to focus on because then you start viewing people as resources. Fair. It's also a thing. So, yeah, that and it's just a decision fatigue and the work of getting everything right. So most companies, well before you get to the size of Stripe, most companies, when you get to three or four teams, somebody is doing the operation stuff and handing other people their scripts. Somebody did it to begin with and other teams just copy it. And then as you get bigger, you've got a team whose responsibility is to maintain that infrastructure and to keep the other developers productive so that everybody doesn't know have have to know everything about everything because as soon as your system gets big enough that's impossible and that happens really early <laughs> way earlier than you think it will <laughs> right but those people have huge generativity they are leverage this is the team that making your other teams able to focus on the business logic that's the goal i don't think we achieve it yet but but we make progress in that direction and we talk about how software is written by people. This is very important. There's also the part that people are influenced by software. Mm-hmm. The software we have available changes how we work. The operational software that you have changes how you deploy your code. If you make something easy, they will do it. So you talked about how this works at bigger companies where each team is responsible for each part. How would you say that plays out in smaller teams where maybe that kind of infrastructure work becomes a story that you take turns doing. That's great because it spreads the knowledge. Uh, Usually there's somebody on each team who's good at bash and writes a bunch of scripts and everybody else uses them. (laughs) Maybe my small team just uh, doesn't necessarily have one of those people yet. (laughs) (laughs) Mine doesn't. (laughs) We're all taking turns like, oh, we have to do that now. (laughs) You might might look at that in, in like your next hire. Seriously. At Monsanto, it was David Dooling, and I've uh, recruited him to Atomist with me. It's one of those things where automating your work feels unproductive because it's not your work, and also because it's more fun than your work. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But it's incredibly productive once you get like a decent idea of, okay, this is taking too long. I should stop now. Okay, no, this is going to be worth it. Or even not, if you just have like that kind of hack day where you can experiment and find the magical golden yak that once you shave it, there's wisdom under its skin. That's the thing. Um, Yeah, totally. There's a a pretty cold calculation you can do for automation, which is how much time am I spending on it now? 
how much time am I saving by automating it? And how many times does that run, right? You multiply time I save by times it's run. (laughs) And that's how much time you should spend on automating it. It's pretty straightforward. That's a starting point. Yet that's a minimum of the time you're going to save. Yeah, definitely. Look at Git. Um, How much time did I spend waiting for SVN log? None, because I never used it. (laughs) (laughs) But now I use Git log all the time because it's at my fingertips. It's right there. It was unusable before, and now it's usable. Now I have a tool that I didn't even know that I needed. There was a beautiful, somebody quoted a Dan Liu article on Twitter the other day, and it said that, I think it was at Google, someone optimized the page load time to make pages load faster. And they discovered that their average page load time actually went up. And when they dug into that, they found out that it was because they were now getting a lot of requests from Africa, where before it was, the site wasn't usable from Africa. So they just didn't get requests. And now it is usable. So they get requests that are much more challenging. So their average page load time went up. But that's a win, right? Right. Making it so accessible to many people, that's a total win. Yeah. Yeah. Like Git log is accessible to me and SVN log was not. So the time that you save is only the stuff that you know you will benefit from this. But the real benefit is the stuff that you do that you never did before because it wasn't right at your fingertips or maybe because you have the time to do it now. I haven't even started on like my actual opinion of what an architect needs to do. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be talking about this in April. I've got a 15-minute keynote at O'Reilly Software Architecture, but y'all get some of the advanced thoughts. (laughs) Right. So people are influenced by software. What you make easy for them is what they're going to do. So if we take the job of an architect, rather than to decree, you must use event sourcing or your service must be tolerant of downtime, make that thing easy. Make it painful if they don't. Maybe write automated tests that run on various services and make things turn red. So measure it and make it easy for them to do. If you want a specific coding style, don't just put frickin' RuboCop up there to yell at you on your pull request. I am not going back to add frickin' spaces and the places you want spaces all over my code. I have better things to do than that. Oh my gosh. But when you've got RuboCop autocorrect, fine. It, you want a space there? Put a freaking space there. I don't care. Thanks. And that's like basic linting. There's also like refactoring. Take what you want to do and make it easy. And this is what we're building at Atomist, among other things. We're building kind of a framework so that people don't have to have a whole team to build Slack bots to like coordinate GitHub with Travis with RuboCop. I wouldn't write them in RuboCop, but also there's automated code changes. So if you want my code different, write a program that alters my code. And if you want me to continue to follow that standards, automate a little reviewer that checks that and makes the commit. And if you want me to close my issue after I merge the pull request, close the issue in Jira after I merged a pull request in GitHub or something like that, Make that notification that says, hey, you closed this pull request. Isn't that great? Have a button on it that says close Jira issue or relate to Jira issue. Um, so actionable notifications and automation of code changing and reviewing. I think this is what architects should be doing, not decreeing how things should be, but automating to make that the easiest way for developers to work. That's generativity. It sounds like what you're saying is 
people, like the architects should be basically like uh, user experience researchers with software engineers and say, what are you guys doing? How are you actually working? And then build something that enhances that process. Yes. Or build something that nudges them more in the direction you would like them to go if it is demonstrably better. Yes. Well, that if it's demonstrably better is where I've watched the screaming matches happen. <laughs> That's why you bring data to that fight. <laughs> yeah. If you don't have data, you know, rock, paper, scissors, whatever, make a decision. And, <laughs> and, and then you can get consistency between teams. Right. Just as an example of that. Uh, a team that I was on a couple of years ago, uh, we had a variety of process tweaks over the years, but one thing that remained fairly constant for quite a while was that, you know, at the beginning of the sprint, we would do planning poker, which is where, you know, we describe a story and everybody has these cards and we all hold up the cards, you know, which are, you know, labeled with points, one, two, three, five, eight, thirteen, and so on. And, um, if there's wild divergence, we talk about it. And then, you know, everybody you know, holds up their cards again until we come to some sort of consensus on how many points a thing is. And we would argue about how many points a thing was. Was it five? Was it eight? Until eventually, uh, we also had to track our time on this project. So eventually, uh, somebody on the team who had a background in statistics took all of the data on how many points we assigned to stories and tried to correlate them to the amount of hours that we spent working on them. And it turned out that we were pretty accurate for one, two, and three points. And anything above three was just too complicated. And there was no correlation whatsoever between points and time. So what we learned from that was, you know, if it's too big, break it down. But yeah, that that's uh, one of the best examples I've personally seen of, of bringing data to the screaming match. And it worked out really, really well. Yeah, that unexpected skill of statistics that you probably didn't hire for but you got lucky, brought a huge amount of value to the team because it saved you a lot of arguments. Oh, yeah. That actually leads to another Remember the Bug One story, but I can I can save that for later. Okay. So, yeah, I have ways to advance as a senior dev. I think it's any way that you can bring up the productivity of the people around you, whether that's networking, automating, encouraging. Or like you said, mentoring and pairing. Um, that goes back to something that I saw on Twitter a while ago that was uh, – the best way to be a 10x engineer is to find five other people and make them 2x engineers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but also that statistics example brings up sometimes uh, your most valuable developers are the ones that have skills unrelated to develop. You would think they would be unrelated to development, but software is developed by people. So there's not much that's not related. <laughs> uh, yes. Any of those skills that are rare on your team, particularly valuable. Oh, oh, and one more, like understanding the, the company, the business that you're in, on one side networking, but on another side, really understanding the business that you're working in, whether it's like finance or insurance or retail or healthcare, that is a huge, huge benefit because it can save a lot of really wrong implementations. And personally, I think that uh, if I were hiring software developers, like as a company, I would look for developers with experience in my industry and not care what language they knew. That's interesting. That sort of leads into this idea that I've been, that's been half forming in my head is that you talked a little bit about uh, how good principal or what did you call it? Technical fellow knows a lot of different teams in the company and has some idea of where one team might benefit from something that another team is doing. 
And then that sort of like led into networking a little bit. And it seems to me that there's a fuzzy line here. Darren, you started out asking about, you know, how do you advance as a senior developer without going into management? And, you know, there's a lot of these things that boil down to people skills and bringing value by connecting different people together who might not necessarily have the same jargon or even the same job titles or background. But there's a really sort of a almost a dangerous slippery slope there of like, if I get too good at that, maybe they're going to try and push me over into management, right? <laughs> How do we avoid that if we want to? Well, I really like the Jessica's focus because uh, I've been thinking about what does being a senior developer mean for me? What should I be doing? And you just help me shift the focus out toward the people around me and not so much about what I'm doing which is really useful because the truth is I don't feel that much different than I did when I was a junior developer. I still think I don't know anything. I mean, I know I know stuff, but I don't know what I know and I don't know how I know it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm working with junior developers now and sometimes they come to me with questions and I'm like, "Uh, well, you do this. And like, how'd you know that? Like, I don't know. You know, it's just (laughs) something that came to me at some point in my career, you know, and if I think about it, there was probably some horror story back then. Oh, yeah, that was the time I screwed up production. And <laughs> right. This is how I don't do that anymore. But it's years of just kind of acquired stuff that you don't think about too much. That's pretty but much the changing the focus to, I guess so. <laughs> I guess right? so. But sometimes there are other times in other areas where I've had to really work hard to learn something, and I can articulate that process to somebody else. But coding has always come pretty intuitive to me. You know, I study and I learn, but I just kind of absorb. Uh, whereas other things I've learned, you know, other types of skills, I had to follow a series of steps and I can articulate those steps to somebody else. But coding is different. But just shifting the focus to how can I bring the team up? That's a great way to think about it, I think. I have a, I have a question tangential to that, which is, so Jessica, from what you explained about architects, and then even some of the questions you just asked, Sam, I just, what are the managers supposed to be doing? Because it sounds like you could run this whole system without managers. So what are they doing? <laughs> That's a really good question. And it plays into a question on our Slack from Ashish Dixit, who he asked about, is it too much to ask for your manager to be your career mentor? Everything we've talked about that like the architect does, this is all, this is all pretty technical direction. This is like shepherding the software, but that only has some impact on keeping the people happy. You can't get anything done if your people leave or if they're despondent, if they don't feel like they're growing. Or if you've got 50 people packed into a room that's like right next to a construction area. And we haven't gotten into how do you decide what to work on? Because you can build software right all day and get nothing for it if you're not building the right software. So your right, manager should be dictating, you know, like the right direction to go in. Is that a manager? Or is that a product owner? See, that's my question. Because I was thinking as you guys were talking, like, why should you be a 10x engineer? Like, this doesn't seem to exist in other technical, you know, areas. Like, there's not like a 10x researcher or a, like a 10x doctor. So why should you be a 10x engineer? Like, is that something that we're just making up because we can do that? Or is that like a failure of something else in the system because our systems are changing so quickly. So you actually kind of hinted at my answer right there, which is that there is no such thing as a 10X engineer. We just like to think that 
you know, some of us just like to think that we're better than others. That 10x thing in um, among musicians is actually a thing, a, a construct that maybe some people think is real, but maybe it really isn't a thing. That, um, you know, if I'm just starting out and I can get into the studio of the best teacher, the strongest rock star unicorn, then somehow I will succeed because of their guidance. And I think there's there's got to be some tempering of that with like, yeah, so many, you know, people who have been in the field like, you know, less than two or three years are hungering for that direction and help. But the other person is still just a person, one person, especially if you're stretched amongst 20 or 30 other people. How much effect can that really have? If you're stretched among five, then they can do a lot to help. There's a distinction between people who are really, really good at what they do and people who can teach what they do. And they're not always the same. Uh, this is especially true of musicians because the work is so abstract. Um, you can meet fantastic musicians who cannot explain what they do at all. And there are some people who are fantastic teachers. They'll never be famous as musicians, but they really know how to get people from a starting point to an advanced point. Or they know how to get them from some somewhat advanced point to a more advanced point. What my personal experience was is that very few teachers were good right. at the beginning point that were also good at uh, college or high school level. Like a beginner teachers were good at teaching beginners. And there's not a lot of uh, exposure to that. But if you could teach someone who was, you know, master's level or higher, then, then of course, there's a lot of exposure. But yeah, there's this, the assumption that since you can play this, you should be able to teach someone else. And then when they're not with you, they will be able to learn as well. And that's a totally different thing than teaching them to play the song or teaching them to write this specific code to do this thing is like helping them come to that mindset where they can figure out what to play or what to write and then come up with a plan that's going to work in this case that may be different from that case. Yeah, that was my first impression after hearing your question was like, what if you find that, you know, magical musical guru and you study with them for two or three years and it turns out that what they're good at is teaching you how to play like them. Have you really gained anything or do you still have to go through the other, you know, couple of years of mastering your craft until the point where you develop your own voice? Does that make sense at all? Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. I found um, as a musician that I learn from people with very different voices and that helped me learn faster to like jump studios. Like my teachers came from different university sex, almost like your parents, you know, go live with the foster parent for a while and learn something different. <laughs> Hang out with the babysitter, get in trouble for your parents later. And I haven't been coding long enough to do that yet, really. Uh, but it's easier, I think, to see other people's voices and know what's different about them because I can just hop on different, you know, different kinds of tutorials that come from different perspectives. Hmm. Does it work though? So in your opinion, Cheryl, like, is there, are there really 10x people? No. <laughs> <laughs> I would say there's 10x teams. Okay. And that's the same with music, too. Like, that rock star has someone paying the bills at home and someone else running the music group and someone else handling the sound for them and somebody else. Like, our, our fantastic Mandy here. Somebody else is handling the sound which makes them sound better. And then somebody else, you know, is handling each part. And as an aggregate, then they're fantastic. I see. So then why do we do this to ourselves? Why do we even have this as a concept? It seems like it's just self-defeating. The 10X thing? Yeah, the 10X thing. Historical reasons. 
<laughs> I mean, I think in development, there's been a trope for a long time. There was some research that was, or maybe it was an article that was published in one place and said that certain developers are 10 times more productive than other developers and that you should just hire these 10x developers. There's a book out about fallacies that we believe in software development, and it debunks this 10x myth specifically. It was published in one place and then cited in a thousand, and then all those citations start citing each other so that it looks like there's a lot of sources, but he traced it to its roots. And it was like this one study, and that study was like not applicable or that good. So the 10x developer is a myth that has permeated our industry because, I mean, frankly, I observed when I was a young developer that I was 10 times more productive than some other people who were new developers. But as we advance past like entry level, that is not the case anymore. Mm. I think we level out a lot. But maybe that's one thing that makes it stick, that you can look around and find a developer that is less than 10 times as productive as you at a lot of <laughs> large organizations. <laughs> I think it's a useful abstraction too. Like if I'm considering a team, let's say like a sports analogy, I'm terrible at them. Or if I'm considering a sports team, I'm going to think of the quarterback. I'm not going to think of the whole team. I'm not going to think of all the coaches. And that's okay as long as we don't try and make ourselves be all 60 people. If you think of that team as that person is the symbol of the team. I think that yeah. kind of brings this up too. It's a fallacy that results from looking at productivity instead of generativity. Because sometimes that person who is not nearly as productive as I am could be if they knew what I knew, if they had my context, if they knew the people that I knew, if they had the background in the code, or if they happened to have lucked out and their three computer science classes at college taught them C and Unix, and that's exactly what they wound up doing as a job. How do we show that if we're working with non-technical managers? Like, how do you show that your productivity in a generative way instead of saying, I worked on these stories, I worked on this? I mean, I'm going to be here the whole time. I'm not going to take a month off so that they can see what I would be like without me. What if this is the job of a manager? We we're talking about what are they even good for? What if part of their job is to recognize who is contributing in ways that are harder to see and giving them credit for that? I think that is a job of a, a good manager. I mean, like when I've been a manager in other contexts, I really tried to spend my time helping to put the right people in the right places. We were, we were doing a technical product, but it wasn't software. But we had some people who they were able to figure out the really tough stuff and they could only produce maybe two or three you know, things each day versus another person who could go really fast through really easy stuff and produce 25. But the return on having those really hard products created was high. So it was worth taking the right person who this was something they were good at and letting them move, you know, technically at a slower productivity, but to produce something that was high quality that we were going to really use and then have other people who were probably never going to be able to do that job and let them just like skate on the easy stuff and just churn things out because it would balance you know, at the end of the of the month, it would balance out. And then it, we would all have, like, it was better to have those people in the right positions. They were all happy and then not have them feel like they all had to do the same thing. Because I think that's where people start to feel really upset and they feel disillusioned because everybody's not the same and their, their strengths are different. And then if you give them the same goal and then they're going to measure themselves against other people, then they start to feel like, 
maybe I'm not as good. Maybe I, I can't do this. And it just didn't help. And we had a morale issue when I started. And by putting people in the right positions and then leaving them alone and then not let other people tell them, you know, like I'm better than you, it actually helped a lot. Nice. So I think really a good manager should be helping people be better at what they do. That kind of coordination and behind the scenes sort of noticing who people are and what they can do and where the need is, that is hard Mm -hmm. and it's time consuming. Yeah, which is why I don't understand. And so that's why I asked my original question, because it doesn't seem like managers are doing that a lot, like in software teams. And I'm not trying to hate on all the managers because I think they're also getting tasked with the wrong things too. But I think that you would need to have it be someone's job to actually help other people do what their jobs are better and not give them a whole bunch of like business tasks and and metrics crap because that doesn't really help anything in the end. Like you'll meet your goals if you're actually taking care of your people. And I think instead they have more focused on these business goals, which doesn't really include the people. And so there's always a disconnect. Well, that actually ties into my original question, which is that a lot of people who have the title of software manager are senior developers who Mm -hmm. didn't want to be developers anymore and weren't necessarily trained to be managers, which Mm -hmm. is a totally different skill set. Yeah, or maybe they did want to be developers, but the track ended at some point and the only way to make more money and to keep progressing, especially in an up or out organization, right, is to, you know, hop onto a different track. And one of the reasons that I'm absolutely horrified at the ever idea of ever personally becoming a manager is that I recognize that it is a completely different skill set. It's one that I'm going to have to, you know, go back to being a, a newbie. And I know that my brain is probably not predisposed to work well in those ways. And the idea of like being a newbie at something that I might not be inherently good at and having that responsibility for the welfare of other people is just a, it's a horrifying concept to contemplate. I think because you actually know that about yourself, Sam, you would probably eventually make a good manager. I Maybe think in like five or 10 years, but... Ugh. Well, it's just a lot, of, a lot of the bad managers are the people who they don't even think like that. They're just like, I have a title. I get to run the world. And they're just so, <laughs> you know, drunk with power. Yeah, they're just ro- they're railroading over people, and they don't even see it. It's and, a different mindset, whether you've got empathy or if you're just opportunist. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. you can learn a lot if you care about people. I mean, I don't think I think being a good manager is not something you can actually get trained to do. You can get trained on tools, but when it comes, if you either care about your staff as people, or you don't, and if you care about them as people, then you're going to take the time to notice, you know, Hey, okay, this person's been coming in. I notice every day when we do our standups, they're not really giving much detail. They don't seem to talk that much to their teammates. Is this like their personality or is there something going on? And they don't feel comfortable saying in front of the group, like a good manager would try to, you know, Hey, let's talk and not make it this, you know, your, your job is on the line conversation, but somebody who doesn't care, They'll just, you know, whatever. And that one little thing that could just be alleviated with a good discussion could grow into a huge team disruption. And then the manager will just frame the team. So I want to bring this back around to Ashish's question, which is that he heard that it's too much to ask for your manager to be your career mentor. 
and we can get into what it means to be a career mentor versus a manager and whether those might or might not be compatible. But uh, what do you think? Right. I think they should be your career mentors. My my best managers work career mentors. I think Launch Code where I am now is completely built on the idea that they are and that they can be. But I think you have to select for that when you're looking for a job. I see myself continuing like the next few things that I'll be looking at doing that, that being an important thing. Like, do I get to work with something fun? Does this have a future? Is there someone here who can mentor me in the tech and in the things around the tech while I'm there? I think a lot of people crave that. I think the people who continually self-improve want that. I think it's valuable to have career mentors that are outside your job too, though, right? Because your, your manager's never going to recommend it's time to go. <laughs> And also, like you said, about having multiple teachers that you find your voice when you have multiple sources of learning. But I think there's a difference between your personal growth as a software engineer and understanding the opportunities inside of the company that you would thrive in. And I think that that is something that your manager should be helping you do. Yeah, I would say your manager only needs to be a mentor and even more than a mentor, a sponsor for you if they want you to advance within the company, if they just assume you leave, then no, the manager doesn't need to be a career mentor. <laughs> Very good point. What? Did Coraline just jump in? Oh, hi. Yeah. Hey there, remember me? Who are you? <laughs> Yay, Coraline, it's been so long. Hi. <laughs> I um I have missed the show so much. I've been traveling so much for the last few weeks, and um, I just got back from South Africa where I gave a keynote at Ruby Fusa, and it was amazing. Yay. And um, jet lag just caught up with me, so I just slept for about um, fourteen hours just now. Right, and let's see if Coraline has any comment. The topic was: Should your manager be your career mentor? Oh my god! Mm-hmm. This is my first impression of that. It's like, what a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we've now got representatives from all the parts of that spectrum. Okay. I guess I have to express why I think that's a terrible idea. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And maybe define what is a manager to you? What is a career mentor to you? What are those roles? Sure. A manager is tied to a job. And a manager's job itself is, you know, she has to represent the best interests of the company and your best interests. And that could cause a conflict of interest. So I think having someone, you know, as a career mentor who works for your company, they're going to be focused on things like retention when it may be best for your career to move on. There's so many possibilities for conflicts to arise that just strikes me as a really bad idea. And given how mobile a lot of us in tech are and the fact that we take advantage of that mobility to get the salary bumps that companies don't really give us because no one likes to give raises anymore, it seems like you would be going through a new mentor every year and a half or two years in that I see a mentoring relationship as a long-term relationship and it has to outlast the job you're at. I don't really see a role for a manager in that process. I want to distinguish uh, components of mentoring because there's mentoring like giving advice and then there's mentoring as a, as sponsorship. And as far as sponsoring you and your career advancement within the company, I think a manager absolutely has to do that or they're failing. True. But you can also sponsor someone outside of the company as a mentor and like, hey, have you seen this opportunity over here? And hey, I have 
I know this awesome developer. You should really interview her. I guess for me, mentoring goes beyond like someone who's giving you advice. And it's someone that you build a long-term personal relationship with, someone that you have to trust deeply. And it's mentoring is a two-way street. You Both the mentor and the mentee have to get something out of it. And that just seems to me to be in conflict with the responsibilities of a manager. Yeah, that is very different. What would you suggest for those people who have made their first foray into tech that are turning their manager into their career mentor? Where should they go to find someone else to do that? Like, can they take some components from their manager and go find someone else to fulfill the other parts? Probably so. But I I really think that, especially if you're new in tech, you have to find two things. I think it is important to find a mentor to make sure that you're on a path of learning and growth and that someone's looking out for your future and sort of advising you on you know where to go from here. We have lots of great resources for getting people into tech, but not for keeping them there. So finding someone like that, I think, is really critical. And the other thing is finding a community of peers because someone who is further along in their field than you are, while they may have empathy for where you are, they may not have the memory of what it was like to be where you are. So having that that peer network to fall back on to say, this is really hard, isn't it? And to hear people say, yes, it is. And we can do this, though, I think is really important. So finding a mentor is difficult. But if you're new in tech, you should be networking and networking and networking. And there are lots of people who are available and are willing to be mentors if you can find them. And I think there have been some websites and so on that have tried to create mentor-mentee networks that... I don't think any of them have really gained traction. I really think it requires sort of in-person networking to find that right person and find that right match. So Coraline, I understand what you're saying about the manager having the conflict of interest with you know, the retention. But one thing that I, I was thinking about as you were talking is that uh, I have actually had managers who've encouraged me to leave the company, which was interesting. But I think maybe one of the differences is that we were all in the same industry and so they were kind of mentoring me from a position of, I know what this industry is and I can see what you could be doing and you won't have that opportunity here. And that might be different in tech because I don't know how many people are thinking about their tech career in terms of industry versus like acquisition of skills. And so maybe this is a unique issue in technology because I didn't have this same kind of concern before. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I don't want to say that a manager can't be a mentor. I just don't think that should be your first choice. But obviously, my experience is skewed definitely toward tech. Yeah, I've personally had managers who were from various points along that spectrum as well. I have had managers who, like, they had a very paternalistic style and just rubbed me the wrong way at every possible minute. Um, I've had managers who are like totally hands off. And while that can be freeing, it's also like, uh, where do I go from here? <laughs> and, you know, I had one manager who uh, not only advised me to leave the company, but left with me to go to the next job. <laughs> nice. So in my experience, what? like what? you mean managers are people too. I know. Right. <laughs> And that last one, and and I are still friends, and we keep looking for other excuses to work together again. But in my experience, that is definitely in the minority. Uh, most managers that I have worked for or near, they get distracted by the minutia of the of the administration of the job, or they don't have a technical background and they don't really understand what our particular needs are, and so they can't really be effective mentors. 
And coming from the mentor perspective, there's a tendency, I think, and I've seen this in other um, places I worked as well. Once other coworkers find out that this one person is, is good at mentoring and, and is willing to help, you get pigeonholed and a whole bunch of people all come to you when, you know, there's other people here as well who could do that, would be willing to help, but it's like not known that they can do it. And maybe they feel that imposter syndrome. Oh, maybe I'm not ready for this. And they don't know how to make that jump. And then you've got the problem that you referred to earlier of having 30 to 50 students. Well, scaled down. Yeah. (laughs) I don't want to make it sound like I don't like managers. Um, (laughs) I've had some really good managers. I don't want to like dismiss the role of the manager outright. I have a manager now who's really challenging me. Um, Not technically because I've reached a certain point and I'm like in charge of, I consider myself responsible for my own technical learning at this point. She is challenging me to be diplomatic, which is something that does not come easily to me, especially when I'm right. (laughs) (laughs) Which is always. And being a sore winner is always so much worse than being a sore loser. (laughs) Yeah. And like, she sort of pointed out to me that if I feel very strongly about something, all my diplomacy just flies out the window and I'm very declarative. And I'm like, no, this is what we have to do because it's the right thing to do. And I, I shut down conversation and I alienate people. And I keep doing this because like, I keep feeling really strongly about things. And I'm like, no, there's no compromise. Just, there's only one way to move forward with this. I'm sorry. Oh, I don't even say I'm sorry. But... <laughs> I'm being challenged to work on that. And um, that to me makes her a great manager to me because like she's challenging me and I'm having to change in response to that. And it's really, it's really interesting and hard. Yeah. Yeah. But if you want not only to be right, but to like spread that rightness, diplomacy is important. Yeah. I can't be effective if I'm just right. Can I make a book recommendation along those lines? Can I say no? Yeah, of course. (laughs) No, no, please do. All right, well, fine. I'll just keep it to myself. No, please do. No, no, it's a mystery. One of the things that I absolutely did not expect when I went back to college was to find a profound, life-altering text in my uh, 100-level writing class. But my textbook for one of those classes was called Everything's an Argument. It's by Andrea Lunsford et al., I think. But this is basically a book on rhetoric, but they don't really talk about it in classical terms. It's very modern, up-to-date. The cover of the of the edition that I had at the time was uh, a Dilbert cartoon. And it basically talks about how all speech is persuasive speech, and it talks about uh, the thing that made me think of it, particularly for you, Coraline, is that it encourages you to go beyond the statements that people are making and try to figure out what the values are or what the goal that they're trying to meet is that would make them make that statement. Um, and it can be a profound tool for like, uh, essentially force starting your empathy. And also, uh, if you can understand where somebody is coming from and what they value and what they want to get to, maybe you can figure out how to either change your message or, you know, possibly even change your mind because you realize that they value this other thing that you hadn't thought of. So it's like requirements gathering. I suppose. You want me to do what? No, no. Why? What problem are you trying (laughs) to solve? (laughs) I think that's so helpful because you find that like maybe you are right, but you're right in the wrong context. And somebody (laughs) is looking from the world from a different angle. And there are going to be people who, when confronted with that forceful statement, just stop and you lose their voices. And so then 
you know, there's a whole level of involvement that we would lose. It's like being a rock in a stream. The water's just going to go around you. Yes. And then you can be productive in your way, but you're not being generative. Yeah. Okay. This is the time in the show where we each decide something that we will take away or a call to action or something else that we say. (laughs) Who wants to go first? (laughs) I learned from at least Jessica's perspective, what a software architect actually is supposed to be doing. Because I've asked this question several times and most of the times the responses I get are they're just software engineers who get paid more because they think they're smarter than everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) That is not always wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to cheat. There was so much interesting stuff in this call that I'm having trouble thinking of a specific thing. So I'm going to cheat and say that my book recommendation to Coraline uh, is a call to action to any listener with time on their hands who wants to get better at arguing and not in the shouting back and forth sense, but in like actually persuading people. And I'm going to pledge to read that book. I really enjoyed this episode. And my call to action is to propose that we do more surprise episodes like this. I hopefully, hopefully the listeners enjoy it. The freeform conversation. Yeah, Let us know on yeah. Twitter or you can email panel at greater than code.com or even better join our community Slack. In fact, while we're on the topic, if you become a patron of greater than code at any amount, you get an invitation to our greater than code community Slack. And also you get special patron only content such as what we really talked about when Coraline popped in today. Dum, dum, dum. And you might even get invited to be on the show at random. <laughs> <laughs> Darren, Cheryl, do you have any takeaways? Um, I have a couple, actually. The conversation around what it means to be senior and where to go next was really useful. And I'm going to think less about me and more about the team around me. That's going to be very useful. And the other thing is that the mentorship conversation was very useful because I've never had a mentor. And I think right now I could really use one. So I'm going to go looking. At least we have the whole internet to look in now and not just our local community. (laughs) Thanks for bringing me on. I did miss Mission Taco for this, but it was worth it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, that sounds good. We should go to lunch next week. (laughs) My current mentor is in my work, except he's on leave for medical reasons. So I too will be mentor hunting. Maybe I should watch out for that conflict of interest. It's good to be back. I really missed you all. And I'm looking forward to coming back to a regular schedule next episode. Yay. Awesome. Thank you for joining this episode of the Stone Cold Podcast. No, wait. No, wait. The Stone (laughs) Soup Podcast. Did we change it again (laughs) while I was gone? Um, I like Greater Than Code. It's so fitting. It comes back every time, Coraline. Don't worry. I'll be back next All week. Right. What if it doesn't? I'll be... What, I mean, well, then you'll just tell everybody that you're right, and then... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm right. The podcast is called Greater Than Code. Stop it. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Greater Than Code. And that's the way it is. Bye, everybody.